Joshua chapter 10. This will be our third week in Joshua 10, our 18th Bible study in the book of Joshua. And that's cool because we're in no hurry, amen? Amen. We're just chilling, waiting for Jesus to come back, so it's all good. And uh, by the grace of God, I think we'll finish the chapter today. And I I just want to warn you, uh, there's there's not going to be anything new in today's Bible study. There's not going to be anything that you haven't heard, really, in, in the last few weeks. Have you noticed, as I've noticed, that the Bible's very repetitive? Have you noticed that? That's, that's not an accident, you understand. That, that's by design because God knows us. God knows how thick-headed we are. And so he repeats a lot of things in his word. And really, if you do a Bible survey, you'll find that only about that much of it is new information. The rest of it is the stuff being retold and reiterated and illustrated. And so I've got no problem stirring you up by way of reminder today, telling you some things that I've already told you that the word of God has already told you. So nothing new. Same basic lessons. But, you know, I wrestled with that with God a little bit this week. Because, you know, I'm like you. I'm like, oh, well, let's get on to some sort of new material and some exciting stuff. But the Lord has us right here. I really believe that. And here's why I think. Some of us are engaged in the battle of a lifetime. Some of us have stuff going on in our life that is so radical, so gnarly, so real. Giants in the land that we're having to confront. The Lord knows And the Lord through the book of Joshua has been training our hands for battle. And the Lord wants to cause us to walk in victory and to live a victorious Christian life. And there's just some things we've really got to lay hold of concerning his absolute faithfulness. And that's going to be the thrust of today's lesson. It's just that God's faithful. We're going to see that God has been, is, and always will be faithful to Israel. And then we're going to realize that we have the same God. And so we're going to draw some conclusions from that. That if Israel is a portrait of God's faithfulness, it illustrates for us the fact that we can really trust Him. That if He can oversee thousands of years of history and be faithful to a people group in the midst of all sorts of travesty and adversity, He can certainly deliver us in our daily trials. He can certainly see us through our difficulties. We've got to believe it. We've got to stand firm on it. We've got to see it through to the end. And this is not a moment in history to be faint-hearted. We are living in tumultuous times, incredible times. We are living in the last days on the eve of the Lord's return. And now is the time to be on fire, fully engaged with the Lord and the things of the Lord, standing in the authority of Jesus Christ, experiencing the victory of the cross. Amen? Amen. So same old stuff in today's Bible study. We'll just give it to you a little different way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these incredible truths that you've been faithful to Israel and that paints for us a beautiful picture that you always will be for us. Lord, give us faith today to believe it to act according to it. Lord, we sure do give it lip service. We sing about it. We amen it. But really, Lord, when it comes down to the wire, when the rubber meets the road and the nitty gritty, do we really trust you? Thank you that you've not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. And so just confirm us up, Lord. We just confess that we're weak people, easily beset by distractions in the flesh and the enemy but we want to be strong in the might of the Lord. So teach us today about your faithfulness and your goodness, Lord, and how to respond to it. I ask that you'd please anoint my lips and author my thoughts for your glory now. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week in Joshua chapter 10, we observed how Joshua dealt with those five Amorite kings. You remember the Amorite kings that formed a confederacy of nations that came against the Gibeonites and subsequently Israel as they went to the rescue of the Gibeonites. And we studied step by step how Joshua dealt with that enemy, the five Amorite kings and their uh, armies. And we drew some conclusions, some parallels, some analogies for how we are to deal with our enemy, Satan. And we just were very forthright. I mean, we we really got down to business. We talked about how we have face-to-face confrontations with demonic entities. 
The fact that we have been given authority in the spiritual realm. That we as Christians have been given authority over Satan and demons. We talked about how to stand in that authority. How to wield that authority. How to verbalize that authority. And how to get the victory when we see a manifestation of the enemy. Huge lessons. And the week before, at the beginning of Joshua chapter 10, we saw that God was willing to do whatever it took to defend and deliver his people Israel. And you'll remember that he was chucking hailstones at the enemy. Amen? There's the enemy and God up in heaven just good, good, throwing hailstones at him. And Joshua, the leader, you, you know, came up in his, with his, in his little mind, what do we need to get the victory today? We need more daylight hours. He asked the Lord to extend the day and the Lord did it. I mean, the Lord is able, amen? That's not hocus pocus, man. That's not a fairy tale. That's an inerrant, infallible word of God. God prolonged the daylight hours. He stopped the world for his people Israel that they might get the victory. God is willing to do the same thing for us. To stop the world, so to speak, that we might experience the victory and the power of Jesus Christ today. And and so we learn those lessons and, and we're walking with Israel as they experience the defense of the Lord and the power of the Lord and the provision of the Lord and the victory over the enemy. And then today as we finish out the chapter, we're just going to see that the victory that they got was very thorough. A lot of repetitive verses here. Let's start looking in verse 28. That's where we left off last time. Verse 28, Joshua 10. It says, Now Joshua captured Makeda on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed it and every person who was in it. He left no survivor. Thus he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also with its king into the hands of Israel. And he struck it and every person who was in it with the edge of the sword. He left no survivor in it. Thus he did to its king just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Let's pause right there. The rest of the chapter until verse 41 continues on in the exact same manner. The exact same words, just a different city. So what we have here is the completion of the southern campaign in the land of Canaan by Joshua and the Israelites. And they're taking these southern cities, these southern strongholds, and one by one they are fall, they're falling excuse me, to the Israelites. And it just says the same thing. It, it, it's a different city, but it says, Joshua went from here to there and fought against that place. The Lord gave it into their hands. They captured the city, struck it with a sword, and they left no survivor. Same thing all the way to verse 41, so we're not going to read it. But they captured Makeda, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir, all those places. But I think it's significant that the Lord does enumerate all those things for us, that he does give us a thorough account of the victory of Israel. We're, we're removed from it, you know, several thousand years removed from it. And so we read through it and like, okay, they went to that city and they beat up those people and this city and they beat up those people. But you need to understand that in the original moment, those were lives. Those were real people. And that was a real work of God. And your life is very special to God. It's very special to God, illustrated by the fact that he recorded these conquests in detail. And your life is a series of ups and downs. It's a series of failures and victories and, and, you know, doing the wrong thing and doing the right thing. And God's faithfulness all the way through it. And it would read like a book, you know, like this. And it would be somewhat repetitive. And as we read it, we'd probably be like, ah, But to you, it's very meaningful, isn't it? What the Lord has done in your life. And don't you fall into the same silly sins over and over again? That's just me? Really? You guys are awesome. I'm totally cheesy. I fall into these same sins all the time and I want to be over these things. But what resonates through that story is God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness and how he's so good to deliver and eventually give me the victory. And so then we pick it up in verse 40. Thus Joshua struck all the land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes of all their kings. Okay, that's all southern Israel. He left no survivor, but he utterly destroyed all who breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea, even as far as Gaza, the same region that you read about in the news every day right now, and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon. Verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their lands at one time because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. So Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. 
There we have, given to us in verse 42, the reason why the conquest was so successful. As it says, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. And for no other reason. And so it is in the life of the Christian. We're going to experience success and victory and fullness and blessings because of who God is, not because of who we are. And that ought to be freeing. You know, religion wants to put a yoke on you. Religion wants to put on you the the yoke of performance. The the, the goodness that will come from your life depends on how well you can perform or jump through these hoops or do these rituals or fit into this mold or be this person. But true, authentic, biblical Christianity is not about you and what you can do or fail to do. It's about what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. And that's so freeing, isn't it? Because we're able to say, gosh, I'm just a cheese ball. I blow it all the time. But Jesus is my king and he's my friend and my savior. And he's taking me from glory to glory. And he's doing awesome things in my life. And he's never going to leave me or forsake me. And when I'm weary and heavy burden, I come to him and I take his yoke and his burden, which are easy and light. And he gives me strength for today. And when I don't know what to do, I wait on him and I gain new strength. And when I'm weary, he breathes life into my weary soul. And he is making me more than a conqueror through him. And God is committed to these things. These promises that we read in God's word, he is absolutely committed to them. He's committed to them. You know, the reason that he's defending Israel in Joshua chapter 10 is because he committed himself to do so in Genesis chapter 12. The reason he defends them there is because he committed himself to do so previously in something called the Abrahamic Covenant. We're going to read an excerpt from it. We've spoken about it in previous studies, but it took place when God called Abraham to leave Ur of the, Chal- uh, of the Chaldees, uh, that region, and to go to the promised land, and that God would make the nation of Israel and other nations come forth from Abraham. And he said about Israel, God did, in Genesis 12:3 to Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. Now, God is entering into a covenant here with Abraham's descendants, and he is obligating himself to preserve, protect, defend, and deliver Israel. This is the basis for the biblical promise of God's preservation of the nation of Israel. He says, those that curse you, I will curse them. Now, what does it mean to curse in this, packet, in this passage? The idea is to stop or impose a barrier. It's to ban or to cause paralysis. It's to treat lightly or to make light of, to belittle or make little. And so God says to those people who are his, if somebody seeks to stop you in the purpose for which I've called you, if they try to bring paralysis to your life, If they try to belittle you or make you little, I'm going to do that very thing to them. I'm going to paralyze them in their steps. I'm going to cause them to decrease in their path. Those who curse you, I will in turn curse, says the Lord. And so the idea of curse here is not some weird thing. It's simply judgment and that God would defend his people Israel. And so it could be read, Genesis 12, 3, in a paraphrase, the one who treats you lightly stops you as you seek to fulfill your calling or tries to make you little, I will judge. The Bible tells us that in the end, God is going to judge the nations for the way that they have dealt with the nation of Israel because he made a covenant with them. In the same way, we have been grafted into a covenant with God. Not the Abrahamic covenant, but the new covenant spoken of in Jeremiah. The covenant of the blood atonement for sin. And God then becomes our defender. He becomes our deliverer. We have not replaced Israel. We've been grafted into a series of promises that God made to Israel. And God is always true to his character. So the moment that you become one of God's people through the blood of Jesus Christ, he becomes your preserver, your protector, your defender, and your deliverer. And he's absolutely committed to being faithful to you. He's absolutely committed. And and what we see in Joshua chapter 10, the Lord uh, delivering them and fighting for them is an outflow of this covenantal promise. He made them a promise in Genesis 12. We see the evidence of it in Joshua 10. What's really fun is to see the evidence, the outflow of God's covenantal promise with Israel in modern history. Take, for example, the last century. 
where something happened in 1948 that was absolutely unprecedented in the all, all the rest of history. That is, Israel became a nation again. Midnight, May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation. It had never happened in the history of the world. Never had a people group, a nation ceased to be a nation, been dispersed across the face of the earth for 2,000 years, and then was born a nation again in one day. It's never happened. It hasn't happened before. It hasn't happened since. God promised in his word that he would did it, do it, excuse me, and he delivered midnight, May 14th, 1948. Now, the day after that, Israel was attacked by five of its neighbors. Can you imagine that? You just become a nation. You haven't even got your governmental gig all in place yet. You don't even have your military all in place. You don't really have your act together. And five other entities come against you. Historical fact, it happened the day after they became a nation. They were invaded by Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq. In that conflict, the Jews were outnumbered 100 to 1. Can you imagine that? Imagine you move into a neighborhood and the first day there and five of your neighbors get 20 of their friends and they come against you, a hundred against you and say, we want you out of our neighborhood. That's exactly what happened. They said, we want you out of our neighborhood. In fact, their goal was to massacre and exterminate the nation of Israel. And by all human accounts, it should have been a piece of cake outnumbered 100 to 1. The day after, they become a nation. David Ben-Gurion, who was the first prime minister of Israel, later on wrote, I felt like a mourner at a wedding. A wedding because this beautiful thing had taken place. We had become a nation again. God had restored us to the land and made good on so many promises. And scripture was just coming to life in front of them. And then he said, and yet a mourner because our very existence was threatened and we faced overwhelming odds and an intimidating enemy. So they engaged in the battle. And what was the outcome? Within a few months, history tells us that the Arab armies were not only stopped as they advanced into the brand new nation of Israel, but they were expelled from Israel, pushed back out of their borders, and then the Israeli defense forces invaded Egypt, Jordanian, and Syrian territory. So they not only stopped the enemy on three different fronts, pushed them back out of their country, and then they went into their own country and began to take their land. So much so that the Arab countries asked for a ceasefire. The five Arab countries that attacked said, stop, you're beating us up, don't take our stuff. And they asked for a ceasefire. And Israel, the day after the battle, was now much larger than the day before the battle. That was God's amazing defense and deliverance of Israel in the face of overwhelming odds and when they were outnumbered by the enemy. That's who God is to Israel and to you. Take, for example, the next conflict that took place in 1967. This is known as the Six-Day War. It happened from June 5 to June 10. We just commemorated the 40-year anniversary of it this month. In, in this conflict, Israel faced Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, and an expeditionary force from Iraq. So like three and a half nations, kind of, three and a half armies. And what had happened was those nations began to amass their forces on the border of Israel. And by the end of May, there were 465,000 troops on the border of Israel to come against her. 2,880 tanks and 810 fighter aircraft at the edge of her borders. The odds were so unbelievable. They were so overwhelming. They were so intimidating. And Israel had a great military leader at the time. His name was Moshe Dayan. You may have seen pictures of him. He only had one eye and he wore a patch and he was bald and he was just gnarly looking. And he was one of the greatest military leaders in all of Israeli history. And he stood before his troops and he had to muster these men to an impossible batter battle, excuse me, an impossible battle, overwhelmed and outnumbered. And what did Moshe Dayan, that great Israeli general, do? He opened up the Bible. And he opened it up to second, or First Samuel chapter 17, and he read to them the story of David and Goliath. And he read these words to the Israeli army that day. Then David said to the Philistine giant Goliath, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. 
This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines to this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give it into our hands. He read this passage to the idea of the Israeli defense forces. They won on the offense and what happened? Six days later, the whole thing was over unbelievable. In six days, they not only stopped and pushed back, but they utterly defeated the armies of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and the force from Iraq and tripled their territory. They tripled their territory in that exchange. They gained for the first time the Golan Heights. We're going to go there in September on our tour of Israel. They gained for the first time uh, uh, parts of the Sinai Peninsula down there. And they gained East Jerusalem for the first time. And in my office at home where I study the Word of God, in my office there I have a picture of three Israeli generals walking up onto the Temple Mount for the first time in their lives in 1967. And I have another poster there of young Israeli um, uh, men and women enlisted weeping weeping at the Western Wall as they just realize God has been faithful to us and has restored us to the land just as he said. When we were outnumbered and overwhelmed, God gave us the victory. It's an incredible, incredible fact of history. And then take, for example, the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Yom Kippur is the most important day in Israel. It's the day of atonement. Yom in, in Hebrew means day. Kippur means covering, or it can be applied to mean atonement, the day of atonement. Yom Kippur, where the whole nation had their sins atoned for by the slaughtering of a lamb. Now, Jesus Christ fulfilled that for you and I and for the whole world. He is a lamb that was slain. Amen. But Yom Kippur, still in Israel today, is the most important day of the year. I've scheduled our Israel trip this September to be in Israel on the day of Yom Kippur. It's going to be in, in Jerusalem on the day of Yom Kippur. And we're going to see that everything stops. Nobody drives, nobody moves, nobody does anything, but they go to the synagogues that day and they recognize the God of Israel. And in 1973, everybody in Israel was in the synagogue seeking and worshiping the Lord. And Israel's enemies took opportunity at that time. And Syria and Egypt invaded Israel from two different fronts while they're all in church. Can you imagine our whole nation is in church and the enemy comes and attacks us on two different fronts? The enemy knew that they'd be celebrating the day of Yom Kippur. And so Egypt attacked from the south and Syria attacked from the north. They weren't mustered. They weren't ready. There they were worshiping the Lord and now they've got to defend two fronts. And what happened? Well, you know the story, man. Israel once again defeated the Arab armies. And, and this time, they pushed Egypt all the way, the Egyptian armies all, all the way down the Sinai Peninsula to the Suez Canal, over the Suez Canal. Israel crossed the Suez Canal and started marching for Cairo. They had been attacked and they were just about to capture the capital city of Egypt. And at that moment, uh, the Egyptians picked up the president or picked up the phone and they called the president of the United States and they called the UN and said, help, Israel's beating us up again. And the US and the UN had to intervene and say, Israel, stop beating up on Egypt. But they attacked us. I know, but just give them a break. And Israel stopped and they withdrew. It's incredible. Even the secular mind sees th these advancements and, and these victories over overwhelming odds. And even the secular mind has got to say, it was the Lord God. And there's testimonies that you could read and books that you can read from people who were there that fought the battles. And just miracle after miracle after miracle, they know it was the Lord. There is no other explanation. The Lord said He would be the protector, preserver, defender, and deliverer of Israel. And He is faithful in ancient in biblical history and he has been faithful in modern history he's going to be faithful in your life every single day and what's fun to look at is the fact that he will also be faithful in the very near future there is something looming on the horizon called the magog invasion we've spoken about it before this is where 
a conglomeration or a confederacy of nations led by Russia invades Israel. It's spoken of in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Why don't you look at it? Ezekiel 38 and 39. Now, we don't have time to, go, time to go into all the details of that stuff. Um, we've talked about it before. I'll sign it to you as homework to read the whole, both those whole chapters. But here's the basic deal. In the first six verses of chapter 38, it speaks about a confederacy of nations that will come against Israel. There's no question in anybody's mind that this battle depicted here is still yet future. When you read the details of it, you know that it is impossible that it has already taken place. It is an event that is still yet future. It is prophecy. And as we have seen throughout history, Bible prophecy is fulfilled two ways, literally and completely. That's how Bible prophecy is fulfilled, literally and completely. And so the logical person looks at history and sees how previous prophecies were fulfilled and says, okay, the prophecies that are still yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled literally and completely. That's consistent and that's logical. And so we're told here that there is a confederation of nations led by Russia, Gog and Magog, that will invade Israel. Now we say, well, that's nothing new. A bunch of nations invading Israel. We see it in Joshua 10. We see it last century. No big deal. And we also see what is nothing new is that the Lord's going to intervene in this battle and he's going to rescue Israel in very dramatic ways, just like we studied him doing in Joshua chapter 10. But what is unique about this are some of the players. Number one, Russia. Russia has never invaded Israel. This is going to be a whole new thing with Russia invading Israel. And one of the major players there that's in partnership is Persia. In the Bible, it's called Persia. In our vernacular, it's Iran. Ask any person from Iran, what are you? And they will say, I am Persian. Okay, they're not called Iranians. They're Persian. Ancient Persia is modern day Iran. And it's very clear from the text that Russia leads an invasion of Israel in partnership with several nations mentioned there. But most importantly for us today, Iran. Now, What's interesting about Russia and Iran is, number one, that we've seen over the last few decades that Russia has been arming Iran to the tune of millions and millions and millions of dollars worth, has been arming Iran, and Russia has been supporting Iran becoming nuclearized. They want Iran to be able to build a nuclear facility. The rest of the world goes, wait a minute, this is nuts. This country is led by individuals who are eschatological in their Islamic worldview. They believe that the world is coming to an end with an Islamic, in the way that the Quran speaks of, and they believe that they're supposed to usher that in, and one of the ways that they usher that in is by annihilating both Israel and the United States and forcing everybody to convert and conform to Islam. And the UN is saying, we really don't want them to have nuclear weapons. And Russia is saying, well, we think it'd be a pretty good idea. I mean, we want them to have nuclear weapons. And so Russia's been an advocate for that. They're equipping them, they're arming them, and they're financing them. What is also amazing about the situation in the Middle East and Russia becoming a major player is this. Russia does not view Hamas or Hezbollah as terrorist organizations. That's like a no-brainer for us, right? We think Hamas, terrorists, Hezbollah, terrorism. But um, this is a headline from Associated Press on July 29th of 06, and it reads like this. Hamas and Hezbollah not on Russia's terror list. The story says, state publishes a list of groups it regards as terrorist organizations and fails to include Hamas or Hezbollah. Officials says movements do not represent a threat to Russia. Yeah, they don't represent a threat to Russia because you're helping to arm them through Iran. And we know that both Hamas and Hezbollah are proxies of Iran, that they do the regional bidding of Iran. And that part of Iran's goal, they've said publicly, we want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. And so part of their goal in doing that is to have Israel utterly surrounded. And so they have the Hamas in the Gaza Strip down in the southwest corner of Israel. And they have Hezbollah on the northern region in southern Lebanon. 
And this came out just two days ago. I told you guys in a prophecy update months ago that Iran was the one behind what Hezbollah was doing in uh, northern uh, Israel in that conflict. Last summer I told you that. And this came out in the, no- in the news two days ago. Iran admits to supporting Hamas and Hezbollah. Duh, we knew that like a year ago. They say, oh, well, we do support Hezbollah and Hamas. That is right. But these two are not terrorist groups. These are two groups that are defending their own land. A chairman said in an interview with Newsweek on Friday. Wait a minute. Hamas and Hezbollah are not terrorist groups? In their charters, they call for the destruction and annihilation of the only democracy in the Middle East. That is Israel. The tactic that they employ is targeting civilian targets and at random launching rockets into the homes of families. That's not terrorism. Suicide bombs. That's not terrorism. They're terrorists. And this came out uh, just in the news today, this morning when I looked at the news. It says that the Palestinian Authority intelligence chief says that the Hamas takeover in Gaza was coordinated with Iran. You know that if you've been watching the news, if you're totally clueless, I'm sorry, but if you've been watching the news, you know that in Gaza there was a civil war of sorts. The Hamas, who was elected to government several months ago, was in conflict with Fatah, who's also in government, another Palestinian organization. And they started killing each other, and Hamas came out on top. And Hamas now has a stronghold in Gaza, and the intelligence chief of the Palestinian Authority said that whole thing was orchestrated by Iran. Why is that interesting? Because Iran is funded by Russia, and the Bible says that Russia Russia is going to invade Israel with Iran. And so the headlines are merely agreeing with what the Bible has said for thousands of years. And so it's be very clear to us that Hamas, Iran, Russia, and Hezbollah are in partnership. But it's amazing to see what degree they're in partnership, how friendly their relations are. This is an old article, uh, but it illustrates the, the tone and the tenor of their relationship. It says, Putin calls Russia Islamic world's most reliable ally and that Iran and Russia together are determined to complete the nuclear station there in Iran. Russia's not hiding anything at this point. They came out and said, Islam wants to conquer the world. That's their express goal. They want to do it through violence. We are their biggest ally. Wow, is there a situation brewing here? How chummy are they? It says in the article, the two sides also exchange views on Russia's ties with Muslims inside and outside the country. And he said, adding that Iran will be glad to cooperate with Russia because of its ties with Islamic states. The Russian Federation Council chairman, for his part, assessed the outcomes of his talks with the Iranian Majlis speaker as excellent and constructive. Miranov said the discussions were transparent and conducted in a friendly atmosphere. They were excellent and constructive. So Iran, you want to annihilate Israel, right? Yeah. And then you want to go after what you call the great Satan, the United States, right? Yeah. Oh, that's constructive and excellent. We're having a great conversation here. We want to help you to do it. This is so friendly and warm and fuzzy. It's gnarly. It's prophesied in the Bible that this would happen. We're seeing it unfold before our very eyes in today's headlines. I've told you before that I have, I'm privy to some information um, from very high-ranking officials in the Israeli army. Very, very, very high-ranking. I can't say any more than that. Here's what they'd said last month. They said this. We are preparing for war here in Israel. And the obvious response is no duh. We know that you're preparing for war with Hezbollah, with Hamas, with Syria, with Iran. We know that. But the next thing out of their mouth was no. We are preparing for all-out war with Russia. We expect that we will go to war with Russia via Iran. But we expect that we will be at war with Russia. We say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the next thing that this high up commander said is unbelievable. This is true. Here's what he said. I think this is what you Christians call the Magog invasion. 
I think this is what you believe Ezekiel 38 and 39 to refer to. He's a secular Jew. He doesn't believe the Bible like we believe the Bible, but he's heard what we believe about the end times. And so he called and said, we are preparing for war with Russia. I think it's what you would call the Magog invasion. And then he said, we expect it to be the battle of our lives. People, Bible prophecy is unfolding before our very eyes. It's scary times. But here's the point of it all. We have a faithful God. God made a promise to Israel in Genesis chapter 12. And our God is a God who keeps his promises. And so in Joshua chapter 10, what did we see God do? Defend Israel. And in the last century with the Arab-Israeli wars, what did we see God do? Defend Israel. And in the days to come, in the Magog invasion, what will we see God do? Defend Israel. Let's look at the details of it. Ezekiel 38, start reading in verse 18. Okay, we're just skipping to the end of the whole thing. Verse 18 of Ezekiel 38. God says, and it will come about on that day. Okay, this is when the invasion happens. When God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. And in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field and all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down, the steep pathways will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. And I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. He'll cause the invading armies to turn on one another. Verse 22, and with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him. Remember, I will judge, I will curse those who curse you. And I shall rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones just like Joshua 10, fire and brimstone. And I shall magnify myself, sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. God has been faithful to Israel in the past. He is in the present and he will be again in the future. Now I know when we think about this happening in modern times, it's hard to believe. God throwing hailstones just like he did in Joshua chapter 10. But it's the only logical thing to believe because we see that Bible prophecy throughout history has been literally and actually fulfilled. And we say the stage is set. It looks like Russia is wanting to invade Israel. Iran is in alignment. These other nations are in alignment. When is it going to happen? That's what we don't know. There's a lot of different theories as to when it happens. And Bible scholars and students of Bible prophecy disagree. And one is that it happens at the same time as the battle of Armageddon. Okay, that's at the end of the tribulation period, immediately preceding the second coming of Jesus. That this, the Magog invasion, is a component of Armageddon. That's possible. And there's reasons in the text that would make us believe that. There are other people who say that it happens in the middle of the tribulation period. There's also reasons that can make us to think that. There are other people who say, no, it happens after the rapture and before the tribulation begins because you know, students of Bible prophecy, that there's an indetermined, undisclosed amount of time between the rapture of the church and when the tribulation begins. It could be a day, it could be months, it could be more. Many say that it happens at that time. Now there's another camp that is always increasing at this moment that says, no, it's the next thing on God's prophetic timeline. We could see this happen this year. Now, I have been convinced of every view at different times. <laughs> I've taught whole Bible studies on why it's the same battle as Armageddon. David Hawking is convinced of that view, one of the greatest Bible prophecy teachers of our time, and he's very convincing. But then Jacob Prash believes that it happens in the middle of the tribulation, and you know Jacob Prash, he's very convincing. And then Randall Price thinks that it happens, you know, sometimes after uh, the, the rapture and before the trip, and, and he's an absolute genius, and I personally have been convinced of all the views. But at this moment, I would not be at all surprised if tomorrow's headline was, Russia is invading Israel. I wouldn't bat an eye at that. I wouldn't be surprised for a moment. I'd be as excited as you could imagine because we're going to see a radical move of God, but I wouldn't be surprised. Those are the days in which we are living. And what will the outcome be? Ezekiel 39, verse 25. The outcome now, the Lord intervenes on behalf of Israel in a biblical-sized battle, in a biblical way the Lord intervenes. And it reads in Ezekiel 39, verse 25. 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob or Israel and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I shall be jealous for my holy name. And they shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. It's going to take the Lord to do that because right now Israel's in a serious spot. Verse 27, when I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gather them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there that is scattered any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. You must understand that the current ingathering that we see of Israel into the land, which is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, is an ingathering in unbelief. At least 90% of Jews in Israel are secular Jews. It's an ingathering of unbelief. But we know that when the Lord Jesus comes again, they will be in belief. And the Bible says that there are certain events that cause them to turn to the Lord their God. And what does he say happens because of his intervention in the Magog invasion? That they now recognize that there is a God of Israel and God pours his spirit out upon them. I'm telling you, we are living in the most incredible times. And let's be honest, it's pretty scary. But our God is absolutely faithful. And if he is this big to deal with these things, and if he's able to deliver and preserve and protect and defend Israel. He's able to deal with your life. You understand that? That's the application. He is able to deal with your life, no matter how overwhelmed you feel, no matter how gnarly things are, no matter how big the giants, no matter how outnumbered or overwhelmed, God is absolutely able. At this moment... Uh, Israel is being attacked in ways. You know that the civil war just happened in the Gaza Strip and Hamas took power. When we were in church last Sunday, Hamas was firing, Qassam, or, uh, excuse me, Hezbollah was firing Katusha rockets from Lebanon into Israel. We were in church. We didn't know about it. I learned about it afterwards. We were here and Katusha rockets were being fired from Lebanon into Israel, indiscriminately fired, targeting civilians. Now, who supplies the world with Katusha rockets? Anybody know Russian? Katusha. They're Russian. You see how Russia's involved in this thing? And just last week, a Katusha rocket flew into Israel. Same thing as we saw last summer. Today, before we came to church, Hamas then started firing Qassam rockets into Israel from the Gaza Strip. Just read the, the headline this morning when I woke up. Kassam rocket damages two houses and sterile. No one wounded, thank the Lord. Just today, Kassam, Katusha is Russian. What's Kassam? It was named after an Islamic preacher who preached the destruction of Israel. So they made a rocket and named it after him. They're firing it into civilian targets right now. Israel is in the situation of a lifetime. The greatest Political minds can't figure out a single thing to do with it. You see, there's certain times in life and in the world where only Jesus can clean up the mess. There are certain things in your life where you're just going to have to trust God. You're just going to have to believe. You're just going to have to trust and you're just going to have to cling. And what we see with Israel is this incredible portrait that's painted through their history and it's a portrait of God's faithfulness. Amen? It is a portrait of God's faithfulness and we ought to be able to look at scripture and history and see painted there that God is faithful to his people. And as I spoke earlier, some of you are in the battle of a lifetime. It's a battle with sin. It's a battle with relationships maybe. Some of you, it's a battle with apathy. You're such a fat American Christian. You're so apathetic and disengaged from spiritual realities and what God wants to do. It's apathy. It's a battle of a lifetime. Now's the time to be engaged. Now's the time to look at a portrait and be inspired. The portrait of God, history, his intervention in Israel, know that he's absolutely faithful. I want to finish with Joshua 23. Joshua 23, I want to finish with that. In Joshua 23, Joshua is at the end of his life. He's had war all his life. 
He's seen the Lord do incredible things. And he's giving his testimony in Joshua 23. He gathers up Israel, and Joshua's about to die now, and he's giving his testimony and an exhortation. Okay, His testimony and a charge to Israel. Verse 1, Now it came about after many days, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advancing years, that Joshua called for all Israel, and for the elders, and their heads, and their judges, and their officers, and said to them, I'm old, advancing years. And then he says in verse 3, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all the nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. Now in verse 6, he testifies that the Lord has been faithful. Now in verse 6, he tells them how to respond to the faithfulness of God. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from the right or to the left in order that you may not associate with these nations which remain among you or mention the name of their gods or make anyone swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. Don't go into bondage, he says. And then in verse 8, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. For one of your men puts to flight a thousand of theirs. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. I love what Joshua says at the end of his life. And none of us have seen as much as Joshua saw. None of us, I dare venture to say, have experienced God in the way that Joshua did. And he says, listen, nation, you know that God has been faithful. Quit playing games. You know that God has been faithful and he has done unbelievable, miraculous things. So his advice to them is, in verse 6, be very firm with the word of God. This is a prophetic word of God for our generation right now. Be very firm with the word of God. We have just seen a portrait of God's faithfulness in Israel. And the exhortation to us is be very firm with the word of God. That's why I get a little bit nutso when we talk about the word of God and about how we ought to read it and how we ought to cling to it and how it is inerrant and infallible. That's why I sometimes injure my fist pounding my pulpit on Sundays. Because if you know God is faithful, the exhortation is to be very firm with His Word. To quit compromising on it morally. To quit compromising on it philosophically. To quit surrendering on it with regards to its infallibility. But to stand for the Word of God and to act according to the Word of God and to live its principles. If you know that God is faithful, be very firm with the Word. Don't compromise, don't neglect, don't negate. Be very firm with the word. Is God faithful? Then be very firm with the word. The next thing that he told them that they were to do was to cling to the Lord. It's the picture of just clinging to, cleaving to, joining with, being glued to. To stick or to cling to. He says, if you know God is faithful, stick yourself to him. The awesome thing is God has stuck himself to us by way of a covenant. And Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He stuck himself to us, but we don't too often stick ourselves to him. And Joshua said, if you know your God is faithful, stick yourself to him. Because there's going to be gnarly times. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We're going to have trouble. We're going to have trials. We're going to have tribulations. There's giants in the land. There's enemies and there's drama. What do you do? Be very firm about the word of God and cling to the person of God. I mean, cling to whatever that means. Become desperate for, search for, grope for, cry out to, long after, chase after the God of Israel. If you believe that he is faithful, then scripture says that we are to be firm in our commitment to the word and to cling to the person of God and that in that one of us can put a thousand to flight. Why? Because it is is the Lord your God who fights for you. And so the last exhortation he gives in verse 11, he says, so take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Take diligent heed. It means be very careful. Be very purposeful to love the Lord your God. The young man came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what's the most important thing? 
He said that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you know God is faithful, take diligent heed to yourself to love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being, whatever that means for you. To be committed to, to go after, to express, to obey, to be intimate with the Lord your God. If the Lord had not been on our side, the psalmist said, we would have been swept away by now, he said in Psalm 124. But those who trust in the Lord, Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are as Mount Zion. They shall not be moved. And as the mountains are round about Yerushalayim, so the Lord is round about his people from this day and forevermore. He's been faithful to Israel. He's going to be faithful to you in your little life. All you need to do is be firm on the word, cling to him, love him with every fiber of your being and stand by and watch the victory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Lord, we thank you for these incredible things. You're such a, let's stand. You're such a good and glorious God. We want to just stand before you right now. We just want to stand before you. If it resonates with you, lift your hands. The Word of God says, I want men everywhere to lift holy hands in prayer. We just want to stand before you and confess together that God, we believe you're faithful. In a world that rejects, in a world that does not believe, in a world that says no way, we say, yes, you are. Yes, you are. Forever you are faithful. You are righteous and you are awesome. You are mighty. You are the conquering king. Jesus Christ, we believe that you died on the cross and paid the price for our sins and that you rose from the dead literally and physically three days later and thereby conquered sin and death and the devil. We believe, God, that you are not only our God, but you are the God of Israel and that you are able in your bigness to be faithful to them and to us. We haven't replaced them. Your heart is so big. You're able to be faithful to both parties. And so we cling to you, Jesus, because you defeated the enemy. We cling to you, God of Israel, because you have proven yourself, Father, to be faithful from generation to every generation. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, God, you are faithful. Lord, you are awesome and you are good and you're good enough for my life. You're good enough for my trouble. You're big enough for my drama. You're able to deal with my sickness, with my fears, with my depression, with my pain, with my wandering, with my sin, with my arrogance, with my junk. You're big enough to deal with it through the cross of Jesus Christ. Forever you are faithful, God. Church, tell him. You tell the Lord. Talk to him. You tell him how faithful he is.